You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to The Comedy Cellar Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99. We're here uh, uh, with uh, Nimesh Patel. What up? Oh, first of all, with the, uh, my co-host, Mr. Dan Natterman, who is always here. Hi, Dan. How you doing? How do you do? Uh, Nimesh Patel is a New York-based stand-up comedian writer for Saturday Night Live. He has been uh, seen performing regularly at the Comedy Cellar and our kind of special guest of honor today. Brett Stevens is an American journalist, editor, and political commentator. Stevens began working as a contributing columnist at the New York Times in late April 2017. And before that, you were editor of the Jerusalem Post, right? That was my... Wait, wait, pro- yeah, and then, the, and then the Wall Street Journal. And then the Wall Street Journal. And on the, well, I used to see you on the Wall Street, on the um, WSJ... Uh, on the editorial tele- report. Uh, reporter. I'm now report. on MSNBC. You're, my, you're on MSNBC now? Yeah. They're accepting... You're, you're, they're, you're right into the lion's <laughs> den, huh? Well, it's a little switcheroo uh, on account of uh, new management in the White House. Is it? So and and you you're a, you're a never trumper, and um or if, I don't mean that as a no it's yeah, yeah. it's about right yeah and um the last time you were here I don't know if you remember I I asked you whether you, if Trump uh, ticked off A B C D and E conservative policies and we made it through the administration will, would it have been all worth it. And I don't know if you remember that. And we kind of went back and forth. And at first, you said yes. Then you said no because he convinced you no. And then recently, then I looked at you wrote a column about Kavanaugh. Yeah. Where I felt you kind of veered towards my position. No, not so, really. So go ahead. Look, I mean, uh, the question about the Trump presidency for um, right of center people like me is whether we care more about the policies um, than we do the values. And I think the only real conservative answer is that you ought to care more about the values, which is to say, you know, sure, um, in theory, do I like tax cuts? Yes, I do. More defense spending, I'm in favor of it. Uh, I'm glad he got out of the Iran deal. I can cite any number of policies where I agree with the administration. I'll say the administration because what the president thinks and what the administration does are are two different things. on the other hand, what I think is going to endure is um, massive damage to American institutions, to faith in government, to the office of the presidency, to our idea of how a president ought to comport himself or uh, hopefully one day herself. Uh, and those things will last much longer than uh, a Supreme Court nominee or uh, a few billion dollars more for this or that naval ship. So on the whole, I I haven't really changed my view about the president every time he tweets, uh, pretty much opens his mouth. It sort of confirms that my judgment back in 2016 was right, even if I'm happy to acknowledge their areas of policy agreement. But you said something in, in the Kavanaugh column, which was like pretty like, thank goodness for Trump. Yeah, I said I wrote a column for once, I'm grateful for Trump. I mean, look, I write 100 columns a year, and humble brag. <laughs> uh, I write more, honestly. I write 100 columns a year, and then I do 25 conversations with my colleague, uh, Gail Collins, which are always a lot of fun. Uh, and so you have to read my work in its totality. I mean, there have been areas where, yeah, I thought, I thought the treatment of uh, 
the treatment of Kavanaugh was in many ways really disturbing for anyone who cares <clears throat> about a concept like presumption of innocence. Right. Um, and anyone who cares about certain standards in terms of the way uh, the media reports stories. So I came out swinging uh, in uh, Kavanaugh's defense um, in that instance. But if you've read I didn't my read columns the, recently. I didn't read the column. Did you, uh, are you, do you think he did it? Or is it whatever he's accused of? I think the answer is we don't know. And when the answer is you don't know, there is a presumption of innocence. Unless you have um, corroborated, uh, solidly corroborated evidence for an accusation, I don't want to live in a society where accusation equals guilt. I think that is the road to a, a totalitarian system. Sure, but we're not talking about just any other job. We're talking about one of the highest courts in the office. You don't think there should be a... Uh, like an almost stainless guy in a, at the highest seat, highest court in the country? I mean, if like, it, I mean, your institute, the Times published one of the accusations. Well, the New Yorker published one of the accusations, which I think they never should have published, which was the, the Ramirez Swetnick accusation. Ramirez. The Swetnick accusation defies belief. Other accusations turned out to be uh, uh, false. But just apply it to your own life, okay? You're, any one of you has some next job you're up for. And if your ability to get that job hinges on an uncorroborated accusation about something you did in high school, you're going to be living in a society that you don't like and is going to quickly turn on the people who are making this accusation. One of the things I noticed, you know, I, I was in favor of Clinton's impeachment back in 19... Uh, 98, because I thought lying under oath was an impeachable offense. And back then, liberals came out swinging in, his, uh, in, in, in Clinton's defense, saying that it was absolutely ludicrous. That puts them in a very poor position now from a standpoint of intellectual consistency for um, demanding the impeachment of uh, Donald Trump. In fact, Trump's, Trump's defenders now are using the Clinton standards from 20 years ago. So I say that only to say that people should be careful about coming out in favor of a certain judgment because it fits their preconceived <clears throat> desire for an outcome, only to find that 10 or 15 years later, it is being used in a somewhat different context against someone who's on their side. And let me just say that I think that, um, the, the, you know, where Clinton, not only did he lie under oath, but he lied under the oath uh, in the plot or whatever it is and to try to get away with the kind of assault of, Paula Jones. So it, was, it wasn't just a benign lie. It was a lie to try to cover, uh, to try to win a lawsuit where he was accused of something bad. Right. Where Trump, at worst, is accused of some sort of, so far, we don't know what the hell is actually going to come out, of some sort of lie in order to cover up a consensual affair with a woman that's extorting him. So that the Clinton case is much worse in terms of, if you want to say that a lie about sex is innocuous. Clinton um, was involved in stuff which he was trying to cover up that was not consensual. And Clinton was using the office and the powers of the presidency to cover it up. That's right. It was while he was in office. I mean, in so many ways, the Clinton case is much worse. But by the way, all of the, all of the liberals who lament that a sexual predator like Donald Trump or a guy who you know, spoke of women the way Donald Trump did uh, before he was elected president, when those liberals lament, how can such a man be elected president? 
Well, take a look in the mirror at just who you were defending back in 1998. Look at what Gloria I was 12, man. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't defending so, nobody. So, so let me just go back to the beginning of the day. So, so my position on Trump wasn't that uh, it, it's all worth. My position was always that he uh, was too risky to elect because he seemed unhinged to me. I mean, just like to give a little example, right after he gets the nomination, he came out swinging against Ted Cruz's father for killing Kennedy. Yeah. It just seemed like a guy. It would just seem like a guy who who couldn't even comport to his own obvious self-interest and continues, and you don't want that guy as president. No. However, I felt like I wouldn't know the answer to whether it would have been all worth it till after he's out of office. Going into it is too risky. I would have to say, no, the odds are we shouldn't elect him. But all the things you're talking about, damage to institutions, all these things, well, there's an opportunity cost on the other side, too. Damage to the First Amendment, damage to the presumption of innocence, all, all the kind of momentum towards things that us and the center-right object to, the political correctness, the mob mentality, all of it that he's pushing back against, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, all these, uh, the, there's a lot of wreckage that could come from a far-left Supreme Court in terms of real people's lives. And, and, and you just don't know. So I kind of feel like if we survive this presidency, I mean, we recovered pretty quickly after Nixon, or maybe we didn't. I don't know what your opinion is about that, the institutions and everything. I don't know. The country went into a tailspin after Nixon. The late 1970s were, were very hard years in the United States. You attribute that to Nixon, the, the Carter? I think I attribute it to the general collapse of faith in American institutions that Watergate uh, engendered. And I think we were fairly lucky with Ronald Reagan and being able to bounce back less than um, less than a decade later. But look, I grew up in Latin America. Maybe on that account, I think that damage that's done by cult of personality leaders against the institutions of state uh, can be irreparable. And yeah. it's it's also cumulative. And so I don't I don't think that we'll be able to really judge the outcome of the Trump presidency till many years after uh, after he's gone. Just to, just That's to jump I in here to too. clarify yeah. what yeah. Brett said, uh, though he doesn't sound it and and uh, and uh, doesn't look it, uh, he was born and raised in Mexico City. I was raised, <laughs> raised. He was raised in Mexico City. That is correct. Born now, in New York City. Uh, uh, and his Spanish, I'm told, is quite good. Unlike Mr. Luis C.K., who also. Uh, uh, spent some time in Mexico, but I saw on YouTube him speaking Spanish, and it appears what it's very, transition. very rudimentary. So, so let me tell you another issue, and, and it, we, we all, all, I don't. But sure, can I just interrupt sure, one second? Um, I would love a Donald Trump who was politically incorrect, and there's a big difference between being politically incorrect and being just an a-hole. Um, Absolutely. You know, by all means, a-hole let, means asshole. Okay, I, I didn't know. I don't know what the rules were for this. Well, this is a cursable radio. Okay, good. So, um, so what you just mentioned, I deplore the political correctness of the left. I deplore the uh, deplore the sort of suffocation of academic and intellectual freedom. I wrote about and deplored the way in which the presumption of innocence was tossed out for Brett Kavanaugh in the way that it never would be if the shoe were on the other foot and it were a liberal a liberal nominee being similarly uh, accused without without corroboration. I oddly agree with you there. So. Yeah. But the problem with Trump is is not that he's he's politically incorrect. He's just a jerk. He's just a vile person. He's just a, a, a an out of control egotist. He, he always was. He's disgusting. Who and 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 a serial liar. And that's bad for for a country that presumes to leave the free world. Do you think he's good at being president? No, no, no. He thinks, okay. Can I just have very quickly with regard to Kavanaugh? What uh, standard of proof? 
I don't know why Nimesh is laughing at that. I just like the way you said it. Uh, what standard of proof do you think would be appropriate for a Supreme Court position? In other words, if you felt that Kavanaugh, if there were a 55% chance that Kavanaugh did that which he was accused of doing, would that be enough in your estimation to preclude him from being a Supreme Court judge? Or would you need a, a at, criminal... At, at 17 years old... For, for well, something, uh, you have to define no, the violation. I mean, look, I, what, what I'm saying well, the is... the violation is what he was accused of. There had of. to be some basic elements of corroboration yeah, but that were you, simply absent from the accusation. Okay, we know that. And just but. saying like, oh, well, Blassie Ford, Dr. Ford, seems like a credible person to me, okay? And or I had a similar experience or, or, or so on. None of that, in my view, means anything. I don't know what a 55% well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying and hypothetically, is. when you're in court, there's two standards. There's... There's uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and there's preponderance of the evidence. And you do the best you can with the evidence that you're presented. I'm saying what standard, ideally, in your mind, should be appro should be in place to preclude somebody from coming as a, becoming a Supreme I Court I thought there was neither a preponderance of evidence in that case, because right. there was no real well, no, I get no that, corroboration. And, there was, and it was certainly... Uh, it was the sort of accusation that would have been never been ad, have been admitted in court in the first place. Now I understand we're not. This is not a criminal trial. This is a question of who gets to sit on the highest court in the land. But mark my words: what sauce for the goose is going to be sauce for the gander, and it means that at any point, any any alleged instance of a, a person's in a person's life can and will be held against them, yeah. and it will. And then the question will always be: well, you know. Did so-and-so, might so, such and such a person have done something when they were 16 or 17 years old? We don't know, but because this is such a high and important office, there can be not a shred of evidence. That, that, well, that I, strikes me as, yeah. a, as a recipe but, but I'm for, supposing for hypothetical. No, no, okay, no qualified person ever wanting to put themselves forward for a Supreme Court position. You know, you, you end up with a standard which is essentially the stainless versus the shameless. Either you've never so much as Sounds smoked like a, a cigarette or had a cup of coffee in your life and you can prove it going back to the time you were four years old, or you're just an Anthony Weiner type person who doesn't give a damn what people throw at you because you're going to go for it anyway. And that's where we are now as a country. So, again, so these, these are the damages to institutions and principles that come from the left, but they don't have any particular fingerprint on it like Donald Trump. But imagine a, a, an alternate world where... Uh, Kavanaugh, you know, one accuser just tanks the Supreme Court justice and all these, and, and the Title IX kids are all expelled and labeled as sex offenders because uh, somebody accuses them and, and, and we don't believe in a robust First Amendment anymore and we don't, I mean, on all these things and you could probably Or delineate. a robust Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment either. I mean, this is, this goes to the very nature of our, our system of justice, which right. is that we believe that you're entitled to a presumption of innocence. Right. So this is a a. The order the. Uh, so, so I mean, so it's like you know. Calamari. Like if um, if uh, I, I'm always afraid of being kind of uh, guilty of being privileged in a way, and I say, so you know, for me, like I don't really care what they do with my taxes. Most like I'm pretty much my life is is, is pretty much unaffected by who's president. So it's very easy. <laughs> it is. Honestly, I mean, so it's very easy for me to, to focus on the president's Those values or whatever it is. And shit. But if I'm a dad and I have a kid in college and he's up uh, for some sort of uh, accused of something in college and he's not allowed to even face his accuser and not across them, I say, oh, shit, I'm happy Donald Trump is president. And, th and then somebody says, well, is it worth it? And that's an impossible question to put, you know, what matters to you and what 
the real injustice that might happen to you or your family, as opposed to the greater good of the nation in an outcome that can't actually be predicted with any certainty. So yeah. I just don't feel I know. I mean, look, you know, uh, you, you asked me earlier whether I describe myself as never Trump. And th those are one of those terms that sort of come into being and they assume a meaning beyond the literal meaning. You know, when, when Trump has done things that I've agreed with, I have praised him. One of the things that I praised him for, I praised his education secretary for, Betsy DeVos, was revising those, those Title IX standards so that the kangaroo courts that had sprung up on American college campuses, uh, uh, essentially destroying the lives of young men on the basis of accusation alone, that those, that those are being uh, reined in. People who really worry me, this is not my, my saying, but Jonah Goldberg, he once coined this phrase, the always Trump people. There's a, there, there are now conservatives who, no matter what Trump does, they will find some preposterous defense for it. So, you know, if Obama had gone and, and, and taken the hand of Kim Jong-un and bowed and scraped to his generals and talked about him as his best friend and said the North Korean crisis had been solved... Can you imagine what Sean Hannity would be <laughs> saying? He's, such, he's, he's deplorable, Sean Hannity. Yeah, <laughs> he's a basket of deplorables unto himself, uh, right? I mean, what would they be saying? Or what would they be saying if Trump had um, made excuses for Vladimir, if Obama had made excuses for Vladimir Putin while accusing his own intelligence officials of, of misstating things? But then the standard they apply for Trump is well, he has his reasons, it must be right. What I've tried to do is ask myself, if Trump does X, what would I say about it if Hillary had done that or if Obama had done that? What I've tried to do is say I would, I'd want to be consistent irrespective of, of, the, of, the, of whether it's an R or D in office. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and that's part of also my problem with is that the alternative was Hillary Clinton. And this is the crew that pardoned Mark Rich. I mean, everything that we that we feel we know about Donald Trump, they do it in a, in a in a more elegant, classy way. But I don't. They're almost no less venal than of course or vulgar than Trump is in their own way. And that and that would be the team that we brought in. You know, question selling for, influence, all of it. Question for it's Brett a Stevens. Tough one to me. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the calamari? <laughs> <laughs> when I'm it's done right. chewing, I'll tell you. <laughs> now let me ask another question. That can a nation? that is not ready to accept a Harvard with more than 20% Asians, be ready to accept <laughs> a multi-ethnic population. <laughs> 2044, is that what we're talking I'm saying, about? I'm saying it's great, to, it's great to say, oh, we should be a nation of immigrants and all that. Mm -hmm. But if we're not ready to, to look at immigrants as Americans and say, well, it doesn't matter how many Asians we have at Harvard, they're Americans <laughs> at Harvard, uh, I think this is a recipe for disaster. Where am I wrong? You are not wrong. I'm not wrong. Um, I hope the, the case... Um, uh, the case, the Harvard case, uh, succeeds. That is to say, why? Why? Because it's naked discrimination against Asian Americans. But you don't think it's being co-opted by that Edward? What's his name? Edward Bloom or whatever that guy. Who's I don't just care who it's co-opted by. It's, 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 it's just, a case on behalf of of Asians. So you're saying it's you're a pro dismantling affirmative action? Yes. That's, but, but, but yeah, that's yes, crazy. yes. Boy, let me let me let me refine his answer. Yes, but. Why is it crazy? But let me, can I just well, first say, of all, Asians wait, don't wait, well, need no affirmative let action. Let, let just, I want to say for the sake of argument, you can disagree with it, but I think you're going to go say. You can say for the sake of argument that uh, America owes a special debt to African Americans. Yes. So we're going to cordon off a certain number of spaces for African Americans. Now, I might disagree with that. He might disagree with that. But that's one. Or, this goes beyond that. The Asians are not 
being limited in order to protect those African-American spaces. Mm -hmm. Those African-American spaces are still protected. Mm -hmm. They are taking these spaces and limiting them within the 80% who are not African-American. So the white people or all the other groups that are competing, they are at the point where they would prefer that you sent saliva with your application. Mm -hmm. They want to know your DNA, and then they'll tell you if they can accept you or not. And this is how can a nation that is becoming majority nothing just a bunch of competing ethnic groups mm -hmm. survive if we're going to be pitted at each other I that way. I think you just make it about who has the most money or you just spread out application and entrance based on money. And I'm saying one other thing. Affirmative action was at its core designed to let African Americans in, yeah? Right. No, excuse me. You're mistaken. Okay, yeah. Please correct me. Affirmative action at its core was designed to keep Jews out of elite universities because... Okay. The second generation of Jews who came after the great, you know, first wave of, of Jewish uh, immigration, late 19th century, early mm -hmm. 20th, their kids were strivers. They did extremely well on the standardized tests that were at the time. But that's because they're sneaky. <laughs> that's because they're, exactly, because they're sneaky, wily, clever Jews bent on world domination and the subversion of, of Christian ethics everywhere. Um, you know, since this I is that was Woodrow I, I, Wilson who said I, I that. I have to say, <laughs> since this is radio, that I was speaking in jest, uh, yes, uh, and that I am myself Jewish. Um, uh, so, so you know then. Well, so affirmative. The, the purpose of affirmative. By the way, Brett Stevens. Not only does he not look Mexican, he don't look Jewish either. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm really disgusted. Um, Looks like that guy. Um, you know, from um, that German dude from uh, uh, what's his name, Christoph Waltz. Do I really? You look a bit like Christoph Waltz. That's oh not poor. Go ahead, go ahead. The, the, the Nazi and Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> Would you yeah. rather look like a Nazi or, or like? <laughs> <laughs> Yo soy un mexicano judío, man. Uh, <laughs> no, I was doing it. I was doing like an imitation of an Orthodox Jew, like. <laughs> so but go I'm ahead, go ahead, finish your right. point. Of affirmative actions. I'm so saying that nobody said the Nazis don't look good. So they just Harvard, were bad people. Harvard was suddenly, <laughs> Harvard was suddenly faced with this influx of 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 Jews. Because they were they were scoring, they were getting the grades needed to uh, to get into Harvard. Mm -hmm. So Harvard decided to expand the criteria for what makes for a Harvard man. And one of the criteria was: is the person clubbable? You know, can he join a club? And so, of course, Jews were not clubbable by virtue of them being Jews. And so the numbers were limited. So the origins of affirmative action begin in an anti-Semitic bias against talented the ch talented Jewish children of immigrants who wanted to make the American dream their own. And now it's being applied in exactly the same way against the children of talented Asian immigrants who, who, who want to do the same. I think one of the most pernicious aspects of that case is, you know, Harvard, when it, um, when it in the admissions process, typically an applicant will be interviewed by a Harvard alumnus um, and then send in the application. And the, and the alumni interviewers were often scoring these Asian applicants very high on personality, saying that, you know, they were just tremendous, tremendously enthusiastic, uh, personable people. And then somehow, at least according to the case, mysteriously, their personality scores dropped, dropped, right? And they were, they were described as sort of um, average strong, or there was a term of art similar to that, basically to say, oh, he's just another smart Asian kid who's going to end up as a doctor somewhere let him go to Vanderbilt or something. 
And fine, I think Vandy's a fine school. It's a great school, you know. But the point was that's not what they earned. Don't oh, don't come here. And I think that's despicable. It's un-American. It's unethical. And if the if the motto of Harvard is veritas, truth in Latin, that is not veritas. So how do you balance what affirmative action is being interpreted as now as a as a as a not what's it called reparation, but almost a fix for? Uh, what's been done to African-American communities versus what's I, I, happening. Yes, I, I object to that because this isn't about the African-Americans. This is about keeping Asians out. This is really not about African-Americans. If this were a case about African-Americans, that's a different conversation. But this is basically a case of making sure that Asians are no more than about a fifth of the Harvard class, whereas if they got in on merit alone, <laughs> they would be 40%. And by the way, is, if, it, is if there... it were merit alone, a lot of the Harvard uh, legacies wouldn't be getting in. Now, if Harvard wants to pride itself as being academically the best university in America, they should have just a merit-based standard. Can okay, I but get a calamari? Because I, I don't want to reach your... But can, it, can you get another order of calamari, please? Can, I don't want a big order myself. I'll just... I, can you... So, you, so, so le, but legacy, listen, to, in my opinion, the legacy admission, it's kind of, that's business. They need the legacy in order to get the, the endowment. So Harvard they, has, like, the endowment, which like is, like, the, the country, GDP yeah. of Taiwan or something. Maybe not that. It's a sovereign wealth fund. They it's have a like, sovereign wealth fund. That's exactly <laughs> so right. But money. in the end, it's still a bit. It's still a business decision. But we also we've always recognized that distinctions based on race mm -hmm. are fundamentally different and worse than other distinctions, which might not be fair. But we allow them to go on. But I don't, we don't okay. allow somebody to be judged on their race. I don't know the and, case. And by the way, I say one thing. Yeah. I think it's even worse than people are saying. I believe that if it was Germans among all Europeans, let's say, who are kicking everybody's ass academically, but they look the same as everybody else, they wouldn't even be limiting them. I believe it, it, it at core also has something to do with the fact that they look different. Sure, because there's some idea that, oh my God, how can you have an incoming class at Harvard that's 40% Asian? And it's like, so what? That's right. So what? They're human beings. They, you know, the the racial differences should not count for one iota in 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 our eyes. And I, I'm so right wing. I say, nothing would make me prouder of my country. No, I'm left to say this. Than a Harvard that was 40 percent Asian, because that would mean we are who we say we are. To I, me, look, you know, there's another thing. Well, I, I have victory. Uh, well, a gold medal in four man bobsled would make me proud. Uh, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you have a a school that's representative of the American population. Well, that's the demographically. Thing. You don't that's need the to. thing. You don't need to. Okay, so if you're a private school, you don't need to do anything. If you're a public school, you need you have a representation of the the demographics of America. But if you're a private school, well, you do this is what you Noam's want. point is: is that if we're going to be focused on making everything look like the the the, the ethnic demographics of America then we really are not prepared as a nation to judge everybody by the content of their character. We're still judging people by the color of their skin. And we're going to come apart as a nation. And, and on top of that, you disagreed with me last time, but I also believe on top of that, mm -hmm. the, the basic... Listen, I'm not anti-immigrant by any stretch of the imagination, but I am most concerned about a successful America. I mean, my, my kids are half Indian and whatever. So, but, um, and, and I don't see planting these kind of seeds in a, in a soil which is so... Uh, Divise, uh, divided. Which is so toxic to what it is we're trying to grow. And when we are encouraging everybody, everybody, for, on the horizon used to be 
content of your character, a nation, a melting pot. That's not on the horizon anymore. On the horizon, I don't know what's on the horizon anymore. And then when I talk to my immigrants and I kind of take their temperature about how they feel about American history, how they, what if America went to war? Would you send your kids? No, we go, we go right back. Like, like it's, it's nothing compared. It's just different. Doesn't make, it's not because they're bad people at all. Mm-hmm. It's something fundamentally different about leaving a country in 1920 where life was horrible and going to America where there's not even a long-distance phone call home and just going across the border and you can text message for free and call back and go back and back and what, forth what and, if, yeah. and then calling yourself and being raised on a marinated, really, on an idea of America, which is kind of a, a bad player in the world and always has been as opposed to the savior of the world. And it, it's all kind Look, of... Look, I also think... I, I think it's the, risky. The, 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 the admissions numbers belie the view that America is this inveterately um, racist society, right? I mean, all kinds of races uh, are having no trouble getting themselves admitted or over-admitted to elite institutions. So if we were a racist society, you'd expect that Harvard would still be 95% white, you know, 2% Jewish and 3% other, right. You know, right? That's just not, not the case. One point I'd make... You know, when I got when I switched from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, one of the things that I noticed on social media is a lot of people were calling me uh, the Times' affirmative action hire, right? <laughs> and I, I thought it was kind of—I mean, it was hurtful. Actually, uh, it was it was it was, it was it was interesting too. Interesting in the following sense, which is that I'm sure that the people who were calling me an affirmative action hire because I was sort of the dumb conservative joining this team of, you know illustrious, mostly liberal writers. Um, I'm sure if you ask them, well, what do you think of affirmative action? They'd say, well, I'm completely for it, right? So why are you calling me an affirmative action hire? Because what you really mean is that I'm a token, that I don't belong here, that I'm basically an idiot who has been plucked from undeserved or deserved obscurity and and put on this on this pedestal at the Times because... For you know, a quota. For a quota, right? So you're only getting a quota. My my the my reaction to that was was just how how patronizing and belittling the description was. You know, I mean, I've done a few things in my life. I ran a newspaper in a war zone. I won a Pulitzer Prize, right? I, I don't think I was the that's beneficiary not a of, brag. That's of a, a real brag. no. That's an out and out brag, right? <laughs> and yet the moment I came to the Times, I was I was at the affirmative action hire. Who's the so, people at the Times call you that? No, on social media. No, like on social oh. media, if you if you just look it up, you'll see it referenced dozens dozens of times. And what it meant was was kind of an understanding that this term of affirmative action, what it really means is a special dispensation for the otherwise undeserving person, right? So if people who are supporting affirmative action are understand what that means. Um, I was given a taste of understanding what it means on being the receiving end, being the recipient of of largesse that actually did nothing but humiliate me. And I think part of the part of the danger of affirmative action is that we have been treating a segment of our society as a problem and as a quota and as a token for 20 years too long. I, I think that maybe 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, Affirmative action might have been necessary. Now I wonder how much damage it does psychically to people who never really know whether their success in life has been the result of their own achievements or whether it's just that people have been kind of opening doors to them that haven't been open for other people. 
And I suspect that that damage, even if it's invisible, uh, is, is deeper than most people admit. I think there are so many strong intellectual arguments against affirmative action. The only thing that could... Kim, another drink for him? The only thing that could overcome them... Thank you, Kim. The only thing that could overcome the, the arguments of principle would be tremendous success from affirmative action. Expedience could overcome principle, maybe, if you say, listen, yes, but look at, look at how it's changed things. But the fact is, there's almost nothing to show for it after all these years. The result, there haven't been great results. In California, where they've stopped it, they've actually had improved graduation rates of African Americans. So what, 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 what's to show for it? I, I, Look, I, there's, my, you know, I'm what, no expert, but that's what I I mean, think. it is interesting that more than 50 years after the Civil Rights Act um, and now more than 10 years after, or we're coming on the 10th anniversary of the inauguration of an African-American president, race relations in this country are really bad. Really bad. And so whatever it is that we're doing, I don't think is working. Is it possible? Uh, that we are getting that as a society we're as unracist as we're ever going to get. In other words, I go to the gym, all right, and I made some good progress up front, but I'm stalled, and I ain't never going to bench 200. Now, analogously, America has made a lot of progress in racial relations. Is it possible that we ain't going no further? I hope not. I hope we do go further. You see, I think you're wrong. What would I think further we, I, look like? Further would look like a country that isn't constantly fixated in almost every respect, on the race of the person involved in, in any given situation. Right. So that if you have... It's just to divide us. Right. Yeah, but the problem is now it's dressed up as righteousness. Now it's, it comes from the people who say, no, this is a good... In other words, the, the, after 50 years of the civil rights movement, what we've decided is that actually it wasn't a problem judging people by race. We, just were, we were just judging the wrong people. Now it's okay to judge white males as, as white males and talk about them any way I, you want and, and, and generalize about them. I think that is just a reaction to white males as being in power for so right, long. You just fight whoever's at the helm. That's just well, how you, it you goes. You can fight the people in power without... When, a, when, when, when an argument comes out of a white man's but it mouth, just, it's dismissing just, it because it came out of a white man's mouth. Just, That's called racism. No, but you're just seeing that the white right. man this, has been in power for so long. Yes, you're just but the like, fact is, I could an argument can be written on a page, and you can read it, uh -huh. and, and if I don't tell you whose mouth it came out of, you have to respond to the argument. Sure. But it's all so easy now, like in the Kavanaugh thing, oh, a white male, as if it was black males or black women. I mean, it's, it's, it's anti-intellectual. And it real I don't see any difference between that mentality and what we deplore in the in the in the white supremacist movement or the alt right. Well, but that's that, that, that's the essential point. And this is, I think, one of the one of the things that the left, generally speaking, doesn't appreciate about the kind of um, feral genius of Trump, which is that one of the things Trump I like did that phrase. <laughs> is he. Um, I mean, I don't think it's. I don't think he does it consciously or thoughtfully, but one of the things that Trump has been very successful in doing is taking left-wing left politics and putting them to right-wing purposes. So, you know, when I was growing up in college in the 19, early 1990s, even before then, the whole notion that, you know, truth was really, what we call truth was really just a function of the power dynamics in society, that was like academic left-wing orthodoxy, right? All of a sudden, Rudy Giuliani says, well, truth isn't truth, right? 
Which, which would be a statement that would be totally at home in an academic symposium 10 or 15 years ago, and everyone goes, oh my God, he doesn't believe in the, in the sanctity of truth. Or Trump is clearly playing towards a kind of white identitarian politics. Well, where does that come from? That comes from black identitarian politics. It comes from the view like, well, if they can, if, if group X can receive the spoils of the system by virtue of belonging to this identity, why shouldn't we be- deserve the spoils of the system for belonging to, to the other identity? So you have to be careful with these politics of illiberalism, which are meant, I think, are originally intended, well-intended, intended to remedy uh, unequal situations. But that's the difference between them. Trump is using them to divide people, whereas the left was using them to rectify a situation. I don't understand it. What is so hard among people of all political persuasions to accept the fact Uh That when you are talking about somebody's DNA, I hate to keep using that trite phrase, but we, that you're you're not you're no longer engaged in anything intellectual. When you when you are when you are scrutinizing somebody's logic or argument and bringing into the fact and basically an ad hominem attack, it came out of a white mouth, a black mouth, a gay mouth. This is crazy talk, and the fact that we're a, a, that this is like a national goal, we th- we think this is this is where we should end up. That we should end up in a nation where everybody defines themselves in terms of... Oh, I don't agree with that at all. Well, then, then, then fight against it and, and, and fight against it with consistency. You know what? You can say anything you want about the nonsense he's saying. Don't bring up the fact that it's a white male because that's really not the point. Because, because he'll just bring in some black guy who'll say the same thing and then you'll have to deal with the arguments. I think the, the point is that... I think what the left tries to get at is that it's been white males. Well, in you power would say that. Time. I mean, you're a brown American, so you know. Right. I mean, my point. Imagine how isn't that a horrible thing for me to say? No, but you're right. That is. It no. stems from the fact that I'm a brown. Like I hope that, it doesn't. I hope it stems uh, from that you thought it through, trying to no, logically. No, I mean, but I'm saying my whole worldview has been influenced by the fact that I'm a brown person. I see how the world has treated so, brown and black people this whole time. So you see a nation where it's okay to judge people or. Not people by the color of their skin, but white people by the color of their skin. Everyone else no, knows. No, I didn't say that either. Well, then, then explain it to me. What I'm saying is that there's a huge population that believes that the white man has been in power this whole time and that they're trying to fight against that white power. I, I don't see what's wrong with that. What, what, I, I think, I, look, I mean, one of, this is another point. You know, uh, I was mentioning the way Trump uses the left against it. Like, you know, so Trump goes and attacks the press, freedom of the press, and the left is like, oh, my God, the First Amendment. Right, And they're right, because free speech is important. But who's been systematically attacking free speech on college campuses for years now in the, in the name of this or that virtue? It's been the left. So the, 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 the basic standard should be, me. if Trump uses white identity politics, right, we should go back to the standard of a pluribus unum, out of many, one. Race doesn't count in this society. It counted in the past, and that was wrong, and we have to escape that. Right. If Trump is abusing... Uh, abusing his bully pulpit and 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 uh, uh, speaking ill about the press, this is not, the the standard should be let's defend the First Amendment, right? It should be a resort to first principles that are consistent rather than opportunistically inclined in our favor as opposed to yours. So what happens when pluribus no longer wants to become unum? I don't think that's true. By the way, I don't think I, I think that by and large, this is one of the many reasons I I reject Trumpism, which is the um, Outrageous slanders, um, and and really the, in my view, the the nakedly racist slanders against immigrants, especially immigrants from Latin America. Uh, the idea that 
Latin American immigrants don't want to be a part of this country. I guess I can say it. I think that's the sheerest bullshit in the world. If you're willing to walk through a desert to be here, you want to be a part of this country. If you are sending half of your income back to your mother or your grandmother in Honduras or whatever, you are ex expressing a sense of family values that is, that is the best of America. If you're working your ass off 10 to 12 hours a day in some chicken farm in Iowa doing jobs that, quote, real Americans won't do, unquote, then you are contributing as, as, as massively to this society as any Norwegian physicist might. We should be welcoming that. We should be celebrating it. You know, Jewish we also Amer need the labor, bottom line. Go ahead. Listen, Jewish Americans, my, my great-grandfather arrived in this country in 1903 or 4 and worked as a carpenter in the, in the Brooklyn uh, Naval Yard. Uh, I think he made something like $7 a week. That's a dollar a day. Uh, his English probably wasn't great. And I don't know about his hygiene. I wasn't alive to, <laughs> to sample it, right? The Stevens but, are renowned for their hygiene. But, but a few generations later, that family made good, like yeah. all of your families, I suspect. Now, as far as Jewish Americans, I, and by the way, we're going to get to Louis because yeah, it's a huge to topic I, I, in the comedy I, I, world. But I just want to talk about Jewish Americans for a second. Yeah. Uh, we have done well, but let's face it, we're still very, very, very clicky. And not we haven't melted... Uh, entirely into the mass of America. You go on any college campus, you see what? Jewish fraternities, ZBT, SAMI, just to name two. What other white subgroup has their own fraternity? They know Italian fraternities. The well, point is, is there is still a clumping and a clustering and an, uh, of, of Jewish Americans clinging to... That's okay. The, 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 well, I, I'm not saying if it's okay or it's not okay. I'm saying, would we want that would we want a 70% uh, Jewish America? Or, or, you know what I'm saying to you? Uh, Brett Stevens, I asked you this question. Would it still be... Well, let me put it another way. Suppose... I'm getting off the Jewish topic for a second. <laughs> Suppose America, hypothetically, and it wouldn't happen, became majority Muslim. Okay. And it was a prosperous nation, and all the Muslims were peaceful. One day, And man. it was prosperous. And everything, everything was great. But, but... You didn't have Christmas decorations in December. Uh, you turn on the radio on December 20th, and you didn't hear, I mean, what a relief. Uh, you know, yeah, actually, God, <laughs> after this season, and, I'm so and, sick of it. And you look out over the landscape, and you see mosques everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they're beautiful. The architecture is very nice, and the mosques yeah. are very peaceful. I lived in the Middle but, East. But that's not culturally the America that many people grew up with. Now, do Americans have a right? I'm totally off topic with the Jewish thing. But do Americans have a right to want to keep to certain cultural aspects? Not that one is better or worse. <laughs> not that a Muslim society can't be a wonderful society, uh, but potentially, but but that Americans don't want that. And to what extent do Americans have a right not to want that and to keep things as they are just because, just because they want to keep it the way they are? Look, I think you have a right to, exp to practice your religion and do so openly and proudly. But America was not founded as a Christian country. That's, you know, the first part of the First Amendment is against paper. But America was not founded as a Christian country, and it wasn't founded by particularly Christian people. 
You will look in vain for uh, fervent expressions of Christianity from any of our principal founders, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington. Uh, Most of these people were maybe theists. Um, uh, Jefferson wrote a whole treatise kind of boiling the, the, the New Testament down to a few sort of general points of principle. And no, if, if, if the America you described, an America that was majority Muslim but was in other respects uh, the America we know today that respected the freedom of minorities and religions and, um, and, and conscience and the freedom of the press, no, I would not object to that. I, I, I wish that would happen more often in, in the Middle East. So yeah, obviously you want to have the right to protect aspects of your identity which are cultural in the sense of the, the religion you practice, the food you eat, uh, even the people you hang out with, the jokes you find funny. There's no question there's such a thing as Jewish humor. Um, but we're not, we're not a Judeo-Christian nation. One of, the re- one of the ways in which I part with a lot of the modern Republican Party orthodoxy is this whole Judeo-Christian business. Like, I, I have read the founders extensively. They were founding a republic on the basis of the Enlightenment that was trying to be as free from religious prejudice and, and the prejudice of religion as it is, as, as possible. And they succeeded. And that's why we are the first nation founded on, on these universalistic principles that can include Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, Jews, Muslims, Christians, you name it. And that's, a, I think, a better country than one like, I don't know, Denmark, which is under the Danish Lutheran Church, or Spain, which is an officially Catholic country, and so on. Yeah, but we have, but we have to have a national ethic that de-emphasizes our differences and searches to become one people. And right. We don't really have that anymore. Sure, I mean, uh, in me, my opinion, I mean, and it just worries the hell out of me. And anecdotally, I get worried when I speak to um, my my immigrant employees in terms of the difference in their attitude about the country to mine, let's say. But I'm well aware that in a generation or two it might, it, it probably will all come out in the wash. And I'm well aware that we all, that we need the labor. We have an aging population and what are we going to do? We, we have to have it. But the, uh, the left, know, the left one scares One point me. you brought up earlier about whether this will ever get better. I hope it gets better. But let, let's emphasize, I mean, I think it helps to grow up abroad to see how relatively trivial our problems are. I mean, I grew up in Mexico City uh, in a household that in the United States would be upper middle class. In Mexico, it was just upper class. And the class differences that I witnessed, fortunately for me, you know, from a privileged position, are so much starker, so much more um, uh, fixed than the ones that exist in the United States. Go to Pakistan, go to India, and look at class differences, religious differences, and how they affect society, they're so much starker than what they are in in, in the U.S. Go to Japan and look at their view of immigrants versus our view of immigrants. It's a reason, when you look at the world in perspective, you feel much more optimistic about the United States. I'll give you one example. I don't expect you to comment on it because it relates to the New York Times, but I'll give you one example. Sarah Zhang, who I totally support being on the New York Times, by the way. I'm happy they didn't uh, buckle. But this is a first... She's born, she's born in Korea, I believe. She came here as a young girl, I believe. And in, within 30 years, she rose to be on the editorial board or whatever, of the New York Times. This is a remarkable immigrant success story that probably you can't imagine in any other country on the world. Yet, 
she seems to be seething. And I, and I have trouble imagining somebody in the 1940s, a Jewish immigrant or some other immigrant coming to this country from another country, finding themselves on the board of the New York Times and, and seem to be seething with complaints about the country. Now, it doesn't mean she doesn't have a right to criticize the country, but can the country really believe what she seems, be what she seems to think it is if she was able to succeed like this? I think the seething... And I look at that and say, well, something is different here. So, there's something, and the fact that it doesn't even, there's no, like, people don't look you're, at you like, what saying, the hell is she talking about? You're saying about? immigrants of yesteryear, as far as we know, we, we, we may be, we may be uh, exaggerating their patriotism, and likely are, but your point being that immigrants of yesteryear did not resent well, I'm saying that if, America if you, the if, way some immigrants may be seen to today. If you came from another country, especially a country where we don't even look like the people, and you find yourself on the editorial board of the New York Times within 30 years, don't you say, oh my God, this is a great country. Look at what I did. No, and not even expected I mean, to think that way. Of course, I, I'm, no, am I talking crazy? Anyway, I'm not gonna ask you that. So that, yeah. One, to Sarah, I don't know her story in the slightest, but I'm sure she has an infinite amount of gratitude for America that she isn't expressed. Ex she might express that might isn't expressed yeah. on whatever paper or article you read. Uh, two, I think immigrants now. I know. When my parents came here, it was out of sort of an abundance of hope and opportunity. And that was it. You just keep your head down. You work really hard. And you do a little better than you were doing wherever you're from. But your kids will be doing better than you were doing when they, when they were kids. Would you consider your parents uh, patriotic uh, Americans? Yes. No, that's terrific. America's, they're citizens. Yeah. Well. That mean, they, they were like, we're going to apply to be citizens. We're going to become citizens of America. Do they, do, they they resent, do they resent the country? No, I think they're just like, this is... I'm not, I'm not, to, these are not leading bracket, questions. I don't expect the answer to be yes. I'm just asking. To bracket or to hop off what Brett was saying is that, like, when you grow up in a place where the differences are so stark, yeah. you come here like, oh, this is okay. This is how, th like, there's things that could improve, but it's better than where we were. Yeah. All right. Three, uh, I think going back to the original argument about what, uh, about labeling white men and uh, and attacking white men, or what, what were you talking about before we hopped off on this, not tangent, but this but, other but point. But don't you understand, it's not white because I'm white. Just the idea of that it's, that it's, that it's now in polite company okay to really believe that, well, yeah, what somebody's race is, it, it matters. You, you can judge their argument by their I, race. I, I think what what is happening now is that oh, there's a lot more cognizance about what the sort of spectrum of power is in this country. And right now, Everyone's trying to chip away at it be and make the playing field level. That's all I think is happening. There is no difference between what you're saying uh -huh. and me seeing some impassioned black man speak eloquently about something that he believes in and saying, ah, he's black. And that's it. I'm done with it. That, that's what you're Yeah, he's black. I'm done. But that, I, don't, I don't need to I consider think, it any further. I think people discounting what someone says because they're white is wrong. But I think... Because they're anything. Sure, because yeah. they're anything is wrong. But I think that... I think we're talking about two different people attacking white men in power. I, I stand by my Harvard Asian example as real. Like you don't get that many blatant examples of things. I mean, they took 20 years to lift that rock up, even though everybody suspected it. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be, they wouldn't do it if they didn't believe it was the right thing to do. And that, to me, is mainstream, mainstream left-of-center mentality in this country. And I think it's very incompatible with a bright, future of a multi-ethnic nation. Now, something's got to give, that's all. Something's got to give. Now, let's get we'll to our section of the out. week. 
this week in Louis C.K. because every week there seems to be a new Louis C.K. scandal. Brett, are you a are you a C.K. fan? Are you a you follow the C.K. Uh, saga? Um, I know you don't cover it, but you follow. He was a fan. He told us last time. I think Louis C.K. is a comedic genius. Okay, well, and you're following, have you followed the latest scandal involving Louis C.K.? Vaguely involving jokes about... Um, Let me summarize then. Go ahead, please do. Louis C.K. was recorded at, I believe, Governor's Comedy Club in Long Island doing an hour set. This was a bootleg recording that was uploaded uh, to YouTube, I guess. I don't know if it's been taken down or not. <clears throat> and it has provoked scandal. Why? Because... Louis joked, among other things, he did jokes about Asians that, that were a little, uh, you know, provocative. He did jokes um, about uh, binary, uh, gender binary people that were a little provocative. But mostly, uh, that the most controversial are her jokes he did about the Parkland students, the students at the Parkland School in Florida, that, that, where, that, that there was a mass shooting. And he was saying that, why do we have to listen to these kids just because they survived the shooting? Just because, quote, you pushed a fat kid in front of you doesn't mean we got to listen to you. And, and Mesh, I don't know if you're laughing at the joke or... or it's funny. I, I did laugh at that joke, by the way. When you I listened did? to it, I did... Yes, it provoked a laugh. I'm, I, I, what it's can I tell you? It's a joke. You know. Um, but that has provoked quite a bit of controversy that Louis is going... In. Now, this was a set that he did, presumably, working jokes out. Not the finished product. But in any case going after the Parkland kids, seen as beyond the pale by many people in the Twitterverse and in the media. And I think the whole purpose of comedy is to go beyond the pale, right? Otherwise, it's not comedy. Now, I didn't hear the jokes. Well, I just so told you the I'm, joke. I'm, well, yeah, but we didn't hear I, the hearing it from I told Louis, it well. Yeah, but you still got to hear the whole context. Hearing it from, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, is different from hearing it from you. So obviously there are jokes that are in bad taste and there are jokes that shouldn't be told. Um, on the other hand, I think that you, just speaking generally, you want humor to push boundaries. If it doesn't push boundaries, then it ceases to be humor. It ceases not only to be funny, it just is not in the category of humor. The second thing I would say is um, if you want things to work, you have to accept that things will fail. And I think comedians are frequently failing because they're trying out material. You would know this much better than I. And some of it lands and some of it doesn't. And you can't really find out what works unless you screw up, right? That's so, the key point, I think, yeah. So that, that strikes me as, as kind, of, kind of essential here, which is that in order for a comedian to really create brilliant material he's going to have to create a lot of terrible material, just like any great painter is going to have to have a lot of duds before he creates a, a true work of art. So my, my general sense, just listening to what you're describing, is that people should give him, give him a pass. I, I always thought that the Louis C.K. controversy existed in a very different universe from, say, the Harvey Weinstein controversy or anything of the sort, and that he got caught up in a kind of a maelstorm uh, that he really didn't didn't belong in. I don't obviously condone his behavior, but I just think we were talking about completely different sorts of transgressions between what he was he he admitted to doing and apologized for doing versus what someone like Weinstein uh, did or is alleged to have done. Absolutely, you want to. I can't defend Louis as a man, but as a comic, like. 
A, I mean, that Parkland, I think if I heard it, it was probably funny. I don't know what he said about Asians or what was the other thing? He did say something about binary, gender binary. He made fun of yeah. the pronoun demand. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, pronouns. what if you're, as a comic, that is your, so, like, I don't want to say comics have a job, but you're, you're just trying to make fun of anything you think is funny. And in the context of comedy, I'm sure that person recording it, like, if you listen to the recording, I'm sure people were laughing. Oh, they were howling. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure people were fucking like, well, oh, this is hilarious. I mean, to be devil's advocate, I would say that, sure. yeah, yeah he, he went to an audience that was very receptive to that sort of thing. Sure. So uh, it's kind of a, a bootstrap yeah. argument. I mean, you could find all sorts of audiences that would find all sorts of things But, you know, funny. one of the reasons why Trump is so successful... Um, and by the way, I don't think Trump has a, a good sense of humor. His sense of humor is either mean Pocahontas was a first-class joke. I've or, heard, or, yeah, or Pocahontas something. is great. I've heard he's pretty funny, though. <laughs> but maybe in private. But I have to say, one of the reasons I think Trump has succeeded is that liberals... I mean, again, this is a gross generalization. But there has been a massive loss of a sense of humor on the left in this country. Amen. And people like Bill Maher talk about this. You can't go to college campuses and, 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 and work any material because... If, God forbid, you should offend some group, then you become a persona non grata and you're, you're guilty of this phobia or that, that phobia. You heard about this comedian that was uh, kicked off stage at Columbia? And then he wrote a kind of saying he deserved it. That's him. Oh, that was you? <laughs> oh, a fellow, fellow New York Times op-ed writer, Nimesh Patel. That was you. Oh, my God. I didn't, des- I didn't say I deserved it. I said that they were right to do whatever the fuck they wanted in terms of kicking me off. It's their stage. They can do whatever they that want. Is, that is I true. I think they were wrong to do so, and I think the process by which people process what is a joke is completely broken. Um, and I, But I think, like, our generalization of, like, labeling people and college students as like soft or whatever is incorrect because I've done colleges before with saying like worse stuff where nothing has happened to me. So I think that well, that was the, that was a maybe the, it's the Upper West Side. No, right? no. no, no what no, what do you what do you think about Louis's joke? Just well, okay. This is the thing, and, and I, on the I, merits of the yeah, joke. Yeah, to, to be the odd man out here. I, yeah, I, I don't. I think it's I think it's great when comedy pushes boundaries. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I think some of the funniest comedy doesn't push boundaries. I don't know Seinfeld. I don't know that it has pushed boundaries, but pushing boundaries is definitely one brand of comedy that I respect. Mm-hmm. And um, Louis done it very well in the past. Like he did refer to made jokes about pedophilia and abortion. But in the past, he was very careful and, and, and strategic about the way he touched those third rails. Mm-hmm. And he really went out of his way to, to present it. And now he seems to... Um, but have this, a different attitude, like fuck this. I'm going to say whatever I want, however it comes out. Which I would, you know, nobody's defended him at risk to themselves more than I have. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm but certainly no is- Louis Basher. But would I would I encourage someone to make jokes about a Parkland shooting victim and 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 in such a cavalier way? Can I ask? No. Can I ask you this? I wouldn't. What had none of this? Uh, had none of his uh, sexual assault stuff happen? Uh, would he? Be, no, he would have gotten away with it. He could be making all these jokes. He, he got away with it. None more. of this would have. Well, no, he he would have gotten some reaction, but not at not this like level. this. Yeah. Look, he, I, they hate him so much. I I, I made they, a joke that Louis ought to uh, tweet out a picture of a crucifix in urine mm-hmm. just to see people now come around to the fact that that's a horrible thing well, to well, do. Look, I mean, I, I just hate this business. Too many people are being declared persona non grata. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who really the Richard Spencers of the world should be persona non grata, right? But. At some point, if you if you draw the lines so narrowly, 
it's going to engender a reaction. First of all, it's unfair to the people who are being excommunicated for in a disproportionate way. But it's also going to elicit a reaction in which all, the, all, all restraints are going to come off because people just want to say, to hell with you and your enforcing of what I can and cannot laugh at. Because because that's a kind of a form of a of a, a profound um, authoritarianism that you don't want to respect. And humor is one of those things. One of the jokes that I love, or the the, the, the the class of comedy that I love, are jokes that were told during the Soviet period. You know, which which by very nature, the very nature of being funny, just kind of blew the lid on on the whole system. You know, just exposed what. What, what a fraud the whole thing was. And that, the potency of that humor has to be, has to be respected. Uh, and I don't think we're doing that here. Funny, I, I see here some of the jokes. I'm, one of the punchlines was, you probably get the whole, pun of the punchlines was, the parrot and I don't think alike. You know, obviously the, the the secret police came in and the yeah. parrot said something yeah. you know disloyal to the state uh, yeah, and looked uh, at the owner. Uh, oh, the parrot uh, and I, we disagree. That's great. <laughs> what I think, by the way, with regard to the Parkland joke that, that, Louis might have been getting at, and I'm not sure that he was getting at it, but which I think taps into a truth that is worth discussing is is that just because you're the victim of something doesn't make you an expert necessarily in all aspects of it. His point was totally fair game. The way he did it was, I think, a reflection of a new traumatized Louis C.K. I don't think he would have told that joke in that way prior to the sexual scandal. Oh, okay. I I I think he would have been, he would have, presented it in a way that showed more concern for his own self-interest. But you know, you, oh, must, sure. you, I, you must know this, like someone who's an artist, anyone who creates material, like when you're, when you're creating things, your internal constitution is very delicate. Like it's, it's, it, it has to come from sort of reservoirs of confidence um, and a belief that you have some running room that allow you to create genuinely interesting uh, comedy or, or for that matter, newspaper columns. And when that's cut out from under you, I think it can be tremendously destabilizing. And I, I just, I mean, I struggle to imagine what it must have been like for him for the last year, going from being a kind of a, a god among comedians to being this PNG, how psychically difficult that must be. So obviously he's wrestling with this and obviously there's going to be a, a process of trial and error and I think that you ought to, we ought to accord him some respect in terms of the fact that if he's going to make a comeback uh, 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 and return to what he was, it's going to require error. Like, right. that's just part of the, the creative uh, the process. Yeah, Absolutely. I would defend him 100% to say whatever he wants, and I don't think it should affect his comeback at all. I just, to be honest, when I answer the question, if, if any comedian went on stage here and told a joke like that, and they can, I wouldn't say anything the first night, but if they continued to tell it and uh-huh. I saw the audience uh, recoil, mm-hmm. I would probably say, listen, dude, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not going down easy for them. You know? But what if the audience laughed? If the audience laughed, I would probably shut my mouth. But the, you got to trust yeah. the audience. Yeah. The, yeah. the crowd laughs, the crowd laughs. So you can't really, because that's the thing with the, with the recording things. Like one person recorded it and a lot of people were laughing, but someone who didn't like it got to hear it and was like, this is wrong. On top of that, it's Louis. He can't fucking say this shit. Like he's trying. Like it's so weird to me that now there's a whole like ecosystem designed to like take shit away from people. On like they're trying to end Louis's life. It feels like with this kind of 
every time he says something, uh, let's fucking make it a, a, a news story or a, a giant podcast conversation. See, I can agree with you more. And, and you know, the, the fact is we, we're living in a world in which, like I call it the neurotics veto. Like whoever is sort of neurotically inclined to hate something that other people accept seems to have outsized power because of the power of social media, because sometimes the law is on their side. They're able to marshal the forces of repressiveness in the way that most of us who are just sort of normal and think, okay, well, that joke didn't quite land, but whatever, you know, he's a funny guy. Like, we don't bother with it. So we've become a country in which the angry Schmendrick has an outsized vote. You know, I remember... But don't angry people always have an outside vote? Even if, but well, now it's we, shouldn't, we shouldn't permit... We, we, it's not that we shouldn't permit it, but we should, we should work against it. I mean, one of the factors for me as a columnist is that, you know, most people who spend time commenting on my columns on Twitter or putting comments onto the New York Times, you know, comment comment section, they're not run-of-the-mill audience, right? They're they're the people who have either the time or the energy to talk about this. So they have their reactions tend to be more excitable, more violent even. Now, whether they're a fair sample of my readers or for that point for that part, Louis C.K.'s audience, I think that's a totally separate question. But unfortunately, it means that you have to be especially attentive to what the angry guy thinks, as opposed to thinking, well, what would a sensible person, what would a reasonable person say in response to this joke or that column? And we've, I think we've lost sight of that because social media, instead of sort of democratizing voices, has super-empowered assholes, uh, there I said it, mm-hmm. um, uh, to... to to dictate the terms of conversation and the terms of acceptable discourse in a way that they wouldn't have been able to a generation ago. Do you think there's any risk that like a a Kamala Harris appointed Supreme Court might start tinkering with the First Amendment in ways which reflect this mentality about speech and hate speech and offensive speech and all that stuff? I hate the fact that people seem now to be under the impression that free speech has become a, a weapon of the right. Free speech is nobody's weapon except the weapon of free people against oppressive agencies or agents, whether it's a government or a university or a censor or whatever. And, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, of course, it was the left that was on, uh, all in favor of free speech when it came to political speech, pornography, you name it. And now, unfortunately, it's more more on the right. I think that's a comment on what the left has become in terms of its instincts towards preferring, quote, inclusivity, quote, respect over, hey, it's a free society. People are going to say all kinds of things, and some of those things are going to be ugly, and we'd better respect it because the alternative is worse. And so I do fear, to answer your question, I do fear the appointment of judges who treat the First Amendment as um, as um, squeezable, right? Uh, I think that would be deadly because the First Amendment isn't just any other amendment. It's the core of all of our other that freedoms. That would be worse than Trump. I can me. think, look, Hitler would be worse than Trump. No, Many things no, would be worse than Trump. That's why I asked you how plausible do you think it is. I'm not, I'm not bringing up some, ridiculously, uh, some ridiculous scenario that very would very unlikely to happen. Well, seems to me something that really could happen. Oh, and it worries me. There are it, judges that are 
pro censoring? I, I believe there must be. I, I'm no expert. By the way, I'll give you an irony. It's interesting. No one has called for YouTube to take down Louis C.K.'s. Well, they did take. Yeah, no, 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 no. No one's called for them uh, to take it down because it's hate speech or whatever it is. Uh -huh. The left is very fine with this hate speech online. Now, that if they can use it a cudgel to bash Louis C.K. Oh, I you, you know, but like, but has the left ever advocated for speech to be taken offline? Of course, they they want Facebook sure. to take hate speech. They want everybody to every, every, all these bottlenecks to take Twitter. Everybody's supposed to censor speech uh, to the left's liking. Well, this is one of the scary things about the power of the Facebooks of the world, which is that increasingly so much of what is speech is filtered through very powerful private corporations with with agendas with agendas and their own sense of ethics, and I think that's. That's going to be a fundamental question moving forward, the extent to which uh, free speech is now going to be dictated by the channels uh, through which we most frequently express the ourselves. Private channels, right? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we had to write the first, if we were writing the First Amendment today, mm -hmm. we, we would probably in some way have to expand it to, to allow the internet to be free in some way. Because they're a more powerful censor than, than the... Well, I mean, well, I mean there's, a, not purely, there's, but there's a bounds be. between uh, treading on the fine. rights of a private company to do what it wants and promoting what we think is the greater good no. of free speech. That's why it's all, bot in my opinion, it's all bottom-up. It, it, we are going to reflect what we actually believe Facebook as a nation. If we actually believe, up. if we believe in free speech, if we were the nation of the 80s and 90s that wanted to see the, liberals wanting to see the Nazis march in Skokie, then we would be inclined to want a totally free Facebook and a totally free Twitter. Mm -hmm. But when maybe majority, but a big minority, an energetic minority of youth believes that they should be protected from hearing things they don't like, I would, these organizations are going to reflect that. You know, and these people to, grow up to become these become the people who decide. I've been trying to think about this since, the, tyrannical. since the Columbia shit happened. With the, since you bring up the youth. Yeah. is that do you, How much of it do you think is a reflection of the fact that this next generation doesn't feel in power in the slightest ah, because of what's happening? Jumbo. It's, I think it's the opposite. I think this generation is is very, 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 very removed from. I was too, but having from having a parents' generation that mm -hmm. have actually seen terrible things in the world happen. Like when I I wasn't old enough to see World War II, but it was it was still in my home because my father had lived through the 30s and all that. Okay. Kids born today, this is all in history books. They think none of this could ever happen again. They they're so removed from any notion of how what a bubble they're living in okay. that they're free like I made this analogy like 40 years ago you didn't even need the microscope to see everything that was wrong then you began now we're looking at quarks and reacting to them like oh, but, we can I see mean, them with the naked the, eye part of the problem I think is there's been just a decline in civics education so people I mean I have three children my oldest is 15 my youngest is nine and I have um, felt the need to walk my children through the constitution uh, article by article, amendment by amendment, because I want them to know what is in it, what it actually says. And I don't know how many parents do this, but I had my son memorize the First Amendment. I said, you know, you're going to just commit this to memory. You're going to understand in your core what this what this is about. And I think that's kind of vanished um, in in a lot of U.S. education. So people talk, I mean, when people talk about, you know, what are core American values, it's like, Diversity, inclusivity, respect, and I don't, I don't want to denigrate those as values. Those are all fine and good, but 
those are not the core American values, right? Their core American values are about equality. They're about freedom. They're about seeing past questions of identity, not only looking at them. They were. Right? And they are, they are essentially about having the right to your own mind, your own conscience, and your own voice, irrespective of what other people have to say. It is the right of the individual in the face of the mass, in the face of, you know, quote, the consensus of opinion. Uh, and I think that's, that, that is, that's eroding, and that scares me. But it, do, it is related to our time in history. No, like, like this is un, not the same thing, but it, was, it, it occurred to me at the time that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were really, uh, probably 80, 90% of the country was ready to risk war rather than let a nuclear weapon be pointed at the United States of America by a dictator. Mm -hmm. Yet when North Korea was making noises about pointing a missile at America, which to me is not much different than the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, a, a big chunk of the country was like, what's the big deal? Like, why are you getting so excited about that? Well, because they didn't live through a world war. They, they, like, they, they, they don't believe so, these so, terrible so, things can happen anymore. The longer. lack of existential threat has led if to... If you live through a World War II and then you see a missile in Cuba, you're like, hell to the no, because I, I'm not optimistic that things can't go bad. Well, I mean, this is the thing that is funny. I don't know, how old are you? 56. Okay, so you're, you're 11 years older than I am. But now, you know, one of the things I find astounding is that if you're 20 years old, if you're a young adult, you have no real memory of 9-11, right? If you're 21, like today, that means you were born in 1998, that means you were three years old on 9-11, you don't remember it. It's already something in the history books. That is to those, that generation, what, I don't know, the Jimmy Carter's election was to my generation, right? And... And, and that's, that's hard for me to, to get used to because 9-11 was, I don't want to say existential, but certainly if you were in New York at the time, it felt existential. And that's gone, that sense that we live in a much more fragile world, that the veneer of civilization is much thinner than we realize, that the ties that bind us aren't as strong and unfailing as, as we might think. Um, we have, I think, my generation has a harder time appreciating or, or, or better appreciates that than my kids' generation. I don't think they quite understand how easily the, the cliches that they uh, regale themselves with, how destructive that they can be, because they don't remember how close we are to the edge of something disastrous And happening. you're also able to draw on your whole intimate knowledge of Israel's situation and the security threats in Israel, and that certainly affects the way you look at America's situation. You, you just, you, you're very aware of how dangerous the world is. In a million years, I never would have guessed you were 56. Oh, thank you. You're the youngest looking 56-year-old I know. Brett, Brett. Ah. On, uh, uh, <laughs> we we got to wrap it up. Uh, that's, well, a good, that's, a good, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> apropos of disasters in the past, did you see the uh, World War I Peter Jackson documentary? So I was dying to see it. I wasn't. It was playing only on two dates, and I didn't quite. Manage. I think it's coming back uh, mid-January. Well, I, I hope so because World War One is a war I've studied quite a bit, and uh, I saw the trailer for it. Those colorized images of the tanks and and the men. But you know, one of the things about World War One is. Uh, so I've been reading the Churchill biography uh, from Andrew Roberts, which I, I recommend to to anyone. 
But even up until early 1914, there was a kind of a consensus view that the chances of war, of a major war in Europe, were very slim. And the belief that the sort of upward march of civilization was going to continue forever was tremendous. Britain and Germany were their, each other's number one trading partners in 1914. And it all blew up in an instant. Uh, and we ought to remember that. I mean, we're now 18, 19 years into the 21st century. There hasn't been a century in human history that hasn't had a calamitous event like the First World War. Uh, we shouldn't imagine that we're immune from it ourselves. All right, Mr. Stevens, it's a pleasure <coughs> to have you. You're quite intimidating. You know, I find myself like rushing through uh, to me. You know, nothing intimidates you. That's why you're a comedian. <laughs> well, me, I, um, I find myself rushing through my you're, words. But you're a fan. Of Brett, you read his column regularly. No, I, I don't have that confidence that he spoke about that you need to like to, to think very, that you're interesting. You've got to win a Pulitzer. That's yeah, what needs to happen. I now. felt very confident, indeed, uh, uh, talking to Mr. Stevens, uh, verbally sparring at times, at other times, <laughs> uh, in, in agreement with what he has to say. Yeah, but at, no, at no point intimidated. In the end, I think I agree with almost everything you say. I am just a less sure. I don't mean to be intimidated. No, no, it's nothing you do. It's just, it's just that you are to me. Um, Your resume I, I just, precedes you. I hope that uh, you, things work out, but I, I think that you know, I'm worried that they won't. That's what. All. What do you think of Noam's fine, intellectual uh, prowess? Oh, no. <laughs> do you think that there's What's a place say? for him? In punditry, perhaps, no. uh, as a radio, having his own radio, political radio show, maybe even a TV show. I think, I think all the questions were incredibly astute, on point, funny, apropos, um, ahead of the curve. And, I, I think, uh, do you really no, believe that or are you just saying that? No, I honestly think you're, oh, you're terrific. You, well, you're buying I, this I, calamari, right? Half price. And you just bought me two alcoholic <laughs> beverages. So. I do think Noam is a voice that should be heard, and Noam often... Uh, yells at me because he says well, I'm, I'm I contrarian, and I, I, the truth is I agree more often with him than I disagree, though I certainly do disagree with him at times. I do think my point of comparing the, the Asians at Harvard to our uh, obsession with uh, being a multi-ethnic nation is, is a good point. I think the most important thing interesting. is we got to learn to disagree with each other. Oh, God. I mean, I grew up in a family. My wife's a liberal. You know, I love her, and it's fun to disagree if you can keep yourselves from clawing each other's eyes out, you can actually learn from people who aren't just inclined to say yes to everything you say. I'd rather be, I'd rather have my, have friends, have companions, have my wife, my children, who don't, don't just say yes to me. Otherwise, you stop thinking. That's right. When I, when I, it tells us, we, 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 they might end it. When I went to college, I saw in the same semester, America Hanna speak and Noam Chomsky speak. Yeah. And I, I don't like either of them. That's my point. And these were both very, very memorable, provocative lectures. And I wonder, both of them, probably not Chomsky, but both of them could be considered like not well, Kahani, allowed. Kahani would probably be and, banned today. And, 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 and I have not one ounce of support for the man, but it would be terrible that uh, I was deprived of that chance to judge for myself, to hear him for myself. And that's where your generation is. Mm -hmm. They want to set some people up and they're going to decide, no, no, you don't need to see this. We got this. this. You're better off. I don't want anybody to filter the world for me in any way. That's, that's really... Anyway, all right. Uh, thank you very much, right, Mr. Thank Stevens. Thank you. Thanks for the honor of having me on. Oh, my pleasure.